the cracks had developed uh, turned black, so I knew that wasn't a great thing, but um, it was pretty deep. But I didn't pause to check it out. I just kept going faster, and and then next thing I knew, like the the snow underneath me just evaporated, just it, you know, basically went turbulent flow, and um, just the snow became air, and I just did a forward roll, and then I was in the avalanche up to my waist chest something like that and uh and i was in the slab moving and at the same time i could sense something going on in my right didn't have to look i could but that other bowl ripped out behind me this is peter billis and you are listening to the avalanche hour podcast that's right you're tuned in to another episode of the avalanche hour podcast your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Based in Nelson, British Columbia, Greg Johnson and his team merged the disciplines of avalanche risk management, structural, and geotechnical engineering. Find out more, explore past projects, and get in touch at sixpointeng.com. Well, I hope everybody's doing real well out there. I just returned from Bend, Oregon, where the 2023 ISSW took place last week. It sure was a good time and super fun to be in the same place with around 1,100 snow and avalanche professionals from around the world. The latest research was presented across a variety of realms within the arena. I'm still digesting many of the presentations and look forward to digging into the papers that complement the presentations. If you weren't able to attend the conference, all of the papers are already compiled into the Montana State University ARC Library database, which is a huge resource, and I, I strongly suggest you check out the papers from this proceedings of ISSW, as well as, as a ton of other information there. I'll make sure to provide a link in the show notes so you can check those out. Aside from all of the oral and poster presentations, it's just such a great place to make connections, see old friends, make new ones, and spur conversations in the intermingling of such an amazing community of people. A huge thanks to Kevin Grove and Zoe Roy, the co-chairs of ISSW 2023, as well as the great minds of the Science Committee and everyone else that made this event a huge success. The next ISSW is next September in Tromsø, Norway. We also currently find ourselves in the midst of the regional snow and avalanche workshop season in the U.S. You can find a complete schedule at AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org under the Outreach and Events tabs at the top. While you're there, make sure to become a member or renew your membership to the A3. I also wanted to share a very proud moment with you all. As the A3 presented myself and the Avalanche Hour podcast with the Sue Ferguson Award, which recognizes individuals for their contribution in media communications about snow and avalanche sciences to the public 
and the American Avalanche community. It was a great honor to receive this and it really means a lot to me. I couldn't do this without the help of the community, our guests, our talented hosts and production team, and of course our listeners. Thank you all. On today's show, we sit down with Peter Billis. Peter has a diverse experience of ski patrolling, avalanche education, and ski guiding all over the world. One of his current jobs is working as the Avalanche and Snow Sports Program Manager at Otago Polytechnic, which is where most of the professional avalanche courses in New Zealand are taught. We chat about Peter's path through the industry. He shares some insights into avalanche education in New Zealand, as well as shares some lessons learned from his 70 plus seasons of working and playing in the snow. We hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter Billis. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks for making the time today. No problem. It's uh, it's kind of stormy out there anyway, so it makes it really easy. Where where are you calling in from? I am in Wanaka, New Zealand. And you've lived in New Zealand for quite some time now, for 30 plus years, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's getting on. Yeah, turn around and uh, time has gone really quick. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who is Peter Billis and and maybe kind of describe your path through the world to to find yourself in New Zealand today. Oh, oh, geez. Okay. I'll, hopefully you stay awake through this. I'll, I'll just look for you nodding off and then that'll be my cue to, to shut up, but uh, all good. Uh, I started skiing back in, uh, back east. I'm from uh, upper New York state and uh, I kind of found backcountry skiing uh, through university days. Uh, I, I never really did much skiing as a kid, my folks didn't ski, so I did those kind of, you go it once every uh, week after school for a while, you wear jeans and a snorkel parka, and uh, and you get really cold, and you ski on sugar, snow, and ice, and I uh, thought that was skiing, and uh, you do that for a while, and uh, I finally got out to uh, to university, and the, there's an outing club, I went to school in the Adirondacks, and uh, the outing club had this great deal where you get Nordic skis for five bucks for the whole season. So I was all over that and I grabbed that stuff, but they were metal edged. Uh, They're probably some of the earliest metal edged skis around. Uh, They were screw on edges and uh, wooden skis or some old mountaineering ski or something like that. And they were fairly new, but I started exploring all the trails around the uh, Northeast uh, and into new England and, and things. And back in the thirties, I guess Roosevelt put together a CCC program and they cut trails all through uh, the woods in New England to keep people in work. And um, they were supposed to be ski trails and they didn't, they just kind of dilapidated and fell by the wayside, except locals kept trimming these trails back. And, and then, uh, well, I don't know if you remember this guy, David Goodman wrote a book about backcountry skiing in New England way in the eighties. And, uh, and that became my little Bible to go and uh, explore things. And it was really fun. And uh, it was it kind of an extension of hiking, really. And at the same time, I was getting into climbing. And, and that was just my uh, way of working through the, through the woods and wilderness of uh, New England, where I was living. And that was super fun. Um, and I, <laughs> in, in doing that, I, I realized that you need some pretty sharp skills to turn skis on... Uh, trails 
right? And these are hiking trails, the Appalachian Trail and, and the likes of that. And and I'd often seek out these things that had some kind of descent purpose to them. And I was probably, it was a long time ago, but I was in Connecticut and uh, uh, they had a nice low snow and I did this part of the AT and I came to a, um, a slide path, a, you know, a landslide path, which was bare rock that was covered with uh, snow. And look, it was a really nice pitch. And I started skiing down this thing. I was alone. And uh, and it avalanches on me. I'm probably one of the very few people to get avalanches in Connecticut. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. And uh, and I and I just managed to, uh, and I, I as I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking, oh, this isn't good because it kind of ended with just kind of dropped off the rock and it went right into trees. And I managed to rest on the bed surface just before I got smoked into those trees. So, uh, that was a huge wake up call. And, uh, and I didn't really, I was just like, wow, how about that? I was quite amazed. I, I had known about avalanches. I'd been going to Tuckerman's ravine for a number of years already. And, uh, and, and Huntington's and Gulf of slides and exploring around those places. And, uh, that, but that was a, uh, an early wake up call to that. And then I um, hooked up with a fellow named um, Dickie Hall in Vermont, and he used to run North American Telemark Organization, NATO. <laughs> and, uh, and I started working with him, teaching Telemark and, and doing these backcountry skis tours with folks. And that kind of got me hooked. And uh, I had a whole other career as an engineer going at the same time, parallel with that. But uh that was my weekends and uh, kept me busy, and that's what got me into into skiing. Nice. Where where did you go to school in the Adirondacks? Uh, Clarkson University. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, up in Potsdam. Right. Yeah, I went to UVM, and so on the weekends we'd take the ferry across the lake and go over to the Adirondacks and climb and backcountry ski, and it's a beautiful part of the part of the world. I probably would have ran into you if it was a. Uh, a couple of decades different. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> it was yeah. that small because eh? there were just weren't many people doing it, you know, and uh, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then you, you made your way out to Colorado after a while, right? Like, yeah. In, in... I had a buddy uh, was going to school in Plattsburgh right across from uh, where you were. And, um, and we, I, I went to see him out West and that was, you know, like, oh my God. The first time I went out west was probably like 1981 or something like that, or 80, I can't remember. And it was, I just couldn't believe how uh, good the snow was, as most people discover coming from the east. And and my buddy was ripping around on tellies like he was burning us on alpine skis. And uh, I went, okay, all right. I got to lift my game here. <laughs> and uh, I really didn't own anything yet. I was, I was still in school. He was a year ahead of me. And when I finally did get out of school, it was the absolute first thing I bought. And it was I was so proud of my Carhu XCD GTs. Uh, they were a mismatched pair that I bought brand new, but I noticed that they were slightly different colors. I never thought much of it. I looked at the serial numbers. They weren't the same <laughs> as, uh, that, but, uh, they were, they were metal edge skis and they were probably, uh, I don't know, it must've been 60 something underfoot, you know, and I thought they were the, the business, you know, and I had some, you know, a solo, uh, 
like extreme boots. They had plastic embedded in the sidewalls. They were the, the business. Yeah, it's pretty funny how you get so into stuff. And yeah, I think it's a, a trait of engineers, a gear freak thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. And you, you started doing a bit of ski guiding out there. Is that right? And uh, yeah. Well, by the time I, you know, I, that was when I went and did a, a trip and kind of went, wow. Okay. And then I went and finally came back east and i was working my job i I was one of those people had my car packed on thursday night and just i was a weekend warrior into vermont new hampshire and connecticut massachusetts uh, just all through new england skiing and uh and it's and then i i did that for eight years uh and then in the meantime a couple trips out west but i packed it all up decided to change my life uh, around the age of 30 and went out West and, um, and started working. I went to visit my buddy and started living with him there. And, uh, I, I took a job with Vale Associates there and they had a backcountry ski program. You, you'd, you'd guide people from Vale Pass to Tennessee Pass, which is, there's quite a lot of skiing in between those two places. And, uh, it was great just going to explore just kind of what I was doing before, but it was work. And, uh, and in the meantime, it was Nordic skiing and telemarking, and uh, yeah, it was all good. Yeah, it was super fun. Nice. The other day we were talking, and you you were just kind of looking back on your career, and and mentioned that you have seventy seasons of skiing under your belt. So <laughs> at some point, you decided that just the the northern hemisphere winter wasn't enough, and you and you wanted more, right? What what were some of your early memories of going over New Zealand and starting to ski in the in the summertime. Yeah. Well, I think I mentioned it was a good buddy of mine that, uh, was a super understated dude and old Mike Letourneau. And, uh, he he had been down in New Zealand a little while, a couple years before. And I was looking for something to do in the summer. Wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And he was like, Oh, you know, you should go down to New Zealand. I go, Oh, is it good? You know? And he gave me that kind of, he just kind of nodded slowly and he said, it's real good. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what I'm going to do then because Mike says it's good, you know? And uh, it was awesome. So I, I did that, followed it, and he gave me a lead on a fella that uh, is still now one of my really good friends who was uh, at the time running telemark uh, clinics down here. And this guy named Jeff Desbecker, and and there was this whole community of things. And he was a Yank of all places from Buffalo, New York. And uh, so kind of made connections down here telemark was a pr- really pretty small thing most of the folks were coming from overseas that were telling here at norwegians and swedes and yanks uh and a handful of uh kiwis but uh it was it was a super fun time to be part of that and uh i was here for a short while and met my now wife uh so that kind of changes your travel plans but uh it not not too much to be honest with you uh just because we just kept going back to Northern Hemi, um, in between and back here. And yeah, that just kind of ticked away for uh, a number of years. And, um, and I started ski patrolling here, uh, I don't know, six or seven years at a place called Trouble Cone. Just got a really active avalanche program. And that, uh, opened my eyes to, uh, that whole world. Um, and then that led to guiding, um, here and there's a formalized program and that's been through the IFMGA program for quite a, a number of years. And, uh, I could see that 
when it was busy, this, this was this was what really pulled me in. Uh, when it got busy with the heli ski operation, uh, they would pull in uh, other people, uh, you know, on those busy days. And if you, they they went to patrollers first, right? So. I was like, okay, what do I need to do here to get on that gravy train? That sounds real good. And uh, because I don't even know, I don't know anything about heli skiing coming from where I was from. You know, I don't even think it was a thing. And uh, I don't even know guiding. You can make a living guiding, to be honest with you. Um, it didn't seem like a living when I was doing it in Colorado, put it that way. <laughs> Living on my friend's couch. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, it, it all worked out. And you stick with anything long enough, it's, you know, you get the fruits of the labor in there. So was the heli operation based out of Trouble Cone right at this? No, it's, uh, well, it's just based out of uh, uh, Wanaka, Queenstown, and Mount Cook. So they service quite a bit. It's the largest operation in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and on busy days, uh, they it's, it's mostly a day operation. Uh, and people do sign up for, you know, week long, but most people just start in and out on the day. And, um, but we run up to... 10 machines, uh, and you know, hundred people, you know, when it's tried, yeah. to, we've, we've tried to cut that back to about 80 these days, but like, it's, it's still, uh, it's pretty, well, pretty good logistics on that operation. Yeah. Harris mountain heli. Yeah. Cool. And, um, and so I'm sure you got thrown into uh, quite a bit of avalanche mitigation when you started ski patrolling at Trouble Cone. Yeah, or? that's the thing about that place uh, is that it had a really active program. And, and in the 90s when I was doing that, uh, they were big snow years. Uh, and, you know, big snow years always equate to big avalanche years. And uh, that was super cool. Um, but, you know, you as a guide, you don't interact with avalanches that much or you hopefully you don't. <laughs> and as a, you know, at a ski area, you interact with them constantly. And so you really get to um, get to learn the beast quite a bit better, I think, than as a guide, because you do interact with it so much and you're uh, you, you see patterns and, uh, anomalies and, uh, those are your big learning points. I think when you do something a lot, that's, uh, especially anomalies. Yeah. Peter, talk a little bit about the season that, that you all have had this year. How about history for 50? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, uh, it was pretty lame in a, in a word. Um, it was great for running an avalanche uh, education program, though, because uh, we we had a persistent weak layer that plagued us all year. We had low snow, which, you know, is usually how that starts. And it never really got much better. And uh, we had we had times where, you know, it was just absolutely abysmal. It was rock hard or, or you know, inconsistent breakable crust, you know. And underneath that was a persistent week layer. It's like, oh boy, I really want to go backcountry skiing. I went surfing more than I went skiing. Yeah, mm. It was that kind of winter. It just, uh, we had one, one really good week in, um, probably about week 10 days or something like that in August, late August, which is kind of the prime time to visit here to, for good snow. And, uh, that, that did turn it on. We, you know, we had a good storm in there and, and, we were just managing as you do with a PWL and just skiing low angle stuff. And 
it's it's amazing that nobody was killed here this year, uh, but nobody has, and no one has actually. We haven't had a fatality since 2018, which is uh, quite a a great thing, you know. It's uh, I like to think somewhere in there, there's a little bit of people's education has helped. Uh, I like to think that, but uh, you know, not sure. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about like just trends that you've seen in in New Zealand and backcountry use in in your time there. I mean, I have to imagine things have exploded as as they have throughout much of the rest of the world and in the backcountry ski scene. Um, so, talk a little bit about trends that you've seen in terms of use, and then education and and some of the ways that um, people are getting avalanche education in New Zealand. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a few things there, but, uh, the trend wise, uh, I think it's pretty similar to what's been happening in the U S uh, that more and more people have uh, go into the backcountry and, uh, certainly get the gear. Uh, that's pretty trackable with, uh, sales from folks that sell the gear and you can look at education numbers and they have increased. Um, we'll talk more about that in a bit, but just more anecdotally, just looking at the number of people that are out there cruising around, uh, I think COVID really pushed things over the edge. Uh, and, you know, people were going where they could get away with it. Uh, for a while, there was kind of nothing you could do. But uh, then, you know, the ski areas were open and you could distance and, you know, two people on a lift and all that th- kind of thing was going on. And, and, and people would also, uh, some areas here you need to, you know, economically, you kind of need to use the lift to access the backcountry. Other places you can ski pretty much from the car park. Um, so both things were happening there. I think a lot of people got into it at that phase it wasn't like the u.s where all of a sudden it was super crowded at the ski areas and you had to nominate days uh it wasn't quite like that it was uh, but i think a lot more people decided just to you know get into outdoor things just like they did in the summer they'd go bike riding and they'd go running and do that kind of thing just to just to get out so they didn't go absolutely mad <laughs> and that was happening here too so uh definitely more usage bottom line and in terms of numbers uh people doing courses before i'd say maybe the last 3 years i've done five intakes of a level one, uh, the level one equivalent here. It's called Avalanche Risk Management Level Five, and that's the first level pro course, and that's about a uh, hundred people running through that. We do ninety percent of all people that come through New Zealand at that level, uh, and there is. Uh, another level of, you know, our level two risk management level six. And we run maybe a dozen to 15 people through that every year. And we're the only providers of, of that level. And, uh, so 10 or 15% of people stick with it that long to, to do that level. And then there's four day courses, uh, rec courses, ASC twos and, one and a half to two day courses, which are AS 
C1s. Uh, our, our system mirrors the Canadians pretty closely um, and has since its inception in the 80s. Uh, and we still maintain pretty good ties with the CAA. And we did provide the level two under license for from the CAA for quite some time. But here in New Zealand, uh, on any qualification, the, the rec things aren't called qualifications. They're just recreational courses is what they are. But any qualification in New Zealand now has to be uh, accredited through the government. And as part of that, you have to jump all the education and academic loops to show it's, uh, you know, that the assessment's fair and equitable and all those things. So that's what I did for the level five and six courses or your one and twos. And those courses are, are like full academic programs. They're uh, 40 credit and 60 credit, respectively, the, the one and two. And uh, they are quite long in length. They're 10 weeks online and then a week practical and then a week reflection for the level one. And then the level two involves uh, like a logbook of your activity of doing those things. And then a few theory courses, a practical uh, field training, and then uh, a practical assessment week. Uh, the field training is another week. So that one's uh, longer yet, but over a period of time, you, most people take a year or two to do that one. Yeah. And and you're teaching these through Otago? Otago Polytechnic is the tertiary education um, provider that's doing that. And it's now in New Zealand, uh, that system is all one. So all polytechnics are under Te Pukenga, uh, which is a, a a broader branch that's encompassed every uh, all polytechs is called the one polytech thing. So, uh, and that's that's a system in change. It's still undergoing that. Uh, so, uh, watch this space. And there, we may may have a new government that's coming in. Uh, elections are soon, and uh, it who knows what's going to happen then. <laughs> it was the old government that brought that in. So, right. And and so with that government involvement, um, there's some subsidies for these, for yeah. this avalanche education for the professional courses, right? How yeah, I don't work? think there'd be much uptake on it if people had to pay out of their pocket for that amount of education for this, but the government subsidizes it by half. Um, and that's the, I, I saw that as a benefit because it, it used to be a uh, private um qualification yeah you know, and, it, and it, we mm. just call it an industry qualification uh and now um with the government backing that it uh you could yeah i saw that the writing was on the wall i could actually in the, in the past we tried to deliver so much information over a very short amount of time it was a horrible teaching model and it would have been even worse for the students because that that's the way I, I was taught here and um uh, it's way too much information and short, too short a time and just spilled over your brain and onto the floor and you stepped in it and slipped and, <laughs> and then you had to carry on. But we, uh, now people, you know, get it all in, in bite-sized chunks, absorb each little bit each week and then, uh, move on. So, uh, it, it's been a great thing for people to actually have more time to study it. Um, and more practice, even at the, at the practical skills of, say digging pits and profiles that can you know i've got an online resources to show you how to do it and then we ask people to go have a crack before they show up yeah mm -hmm. and and what sort of instructor team do you have you have a, a bunch of 
instructors. Yeah, yeah, I try to uh, balance that out with uh, people from uh, climbing community uh, and ski patrol and guiding, um, uh, ski guiding, and I try to keep a balance in there of uh, men and women. Uh, There's not as many women in the pool to uh, draw from, but our students, we always have a quarter to a third uh, will be women. So I think it's really important to have those role models in there. And uh, just it balances our instructor team uh, a bit better anyway. Um, and th- they're just all, nobody's really, tr- it's pretty rare to find a trained teacher in that crew. It's just people that work in industry. And, uh, you know, I've got some folks that, uh, you know, from a climbing background that guide the seven, uh, the seven summits and done Elverse nine times. And, you know, there are some super qualified people in, in their own realms that, uh, just think it's important to to keep in touch with the avalanche side as their own professional development I, and I, I just think it's awesome yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I probably employ maybe 13 14 people each season yeah great um well it seems like that's kind of your program is pretty key to the professional avalanche education within new zealand 90 percent of of folks going through the courses are are coming through your program, right? Yeah, and then and then on the upper end, everybody, you know. So and the people that do that upper end program are, um, you know, the people that are working in the industry that want to go on to a supervisory role. So if they want to to be a, a full cert guide, you have to do that. To be uh, a control route leader uh, on a, at a ski area, you'd need to do that. Um, to work on the Milford Road program down here, which is the you know, our roading program with massive avalanche paths in it uh, much like rogers pass kind of thing uh you know you'd you'd need that qu- kind of qualification so i i in a it's it's been a a, a labor of love and i, I definitely feel like a, a bit of a gatekeeper there you know and uh, to make sure that the level is is high enough and the and uh, the industry is being fed with good high quality people excellent how about on the recreational side of things, just for, for folks that are getting into backcountry ski touring, um, you know, what is, what is the course offerings look like through that? I, I think you've told me before that it's through private guiding companies that have permits to operate on crown land and whatnot, but um, just describe that and maybe the relationship with the Mountain Safety Council, yeah. Mountain Safety Council here is a... Uh uh, kind of overriding, uh, body for all things outdoors in terms of outdoor safety. So they even touch on firearms and, uh, uh, tramping or hiking and kind of the things you do in the mountains pretty much is, is, uh, is, but just like to say mountain safety, uh, focus, but they, uh, where they used to do, um, courses uh, and uh, get instructors to do courses and provide that in all kinds of realms. Uh, now they have stepped away from that. They, in 2017, they decided um, as a mandate or, and their, their supporters um, and people that pretty much fund them uh, or organizations that uh, underwrite them and our member organizations, uh, they just decided that the best way to reach people was messaging and not actually teaching them. So, and uh, you know, it became a numbers game where you can 
look on the internet and say, oh, well, if we provide this information and we have so many hits, then we're reaching more people than a dozen people in a, in a firearms course kind of thing. So mm. they, they decided to move in that direction and disbanded all, all instruction. And that was disturbing for a lot of people that were involved in that, but uh, that's what they did. So it left it out to private providers to do that. And you have to have a um, permit and that is provided by going to whoever you have to prove that you've gone through some kind of safety due diligence. Uh, so that's a, becomes an audited uh, safety management system that's in place, uh, which helps the robustness of the whole uh, system. And uh, that involves having qualified people to do things uh, that you know what to do when, when the things go wrong, all that kind of carry on. So that's been left to the guidance companies pretty much to provide that because they're the ones with the qualifications to uh, run those things. And uh, so that's pretty much how it is. So it's, uh, it's, it depends on what kind of place you end up going. You know, some are heli access, some are, uh, right off the ski area, some are in the ski area. Um, and that's pretty much determines the, the cost of what you're going to pay. But again, what's common is a one and a half day course and a four day course. And, and they're super popular, probably, you know, numbers are just smaller here. There's only 5 million people here in a state of Colorado size place. The offerings are there and it seems like it's a, a growing trend that people are taking um, some sort of avalanche education. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're super popular. Uh, yeah. There's no doubt. And it, it sure helps when all over social media, you've got, we had a lot of close calls this year and big avalanches uh, at Trouble Cone, probably the, the scary I was telling you about, we had the biggest avalanche cycle that I've ever seen there, or actually two, two of the largest uh, avalanches at that scary near the summit slopes, two meter crowns, uh, you know, one was two meters, one was one and a half, almost took out the upper lift shack. Uh, and it was quite impressive. And, and one kind of went over, crossed a track, filled an entire basin, and spilled out into a lower area. That's the start zone of another, uh, path. Uh, it took, it was a heli, um, heli drop of 20 kg amfo, but, uh, it was still the, you know, what it, what it pulled out was super impressive. I've never seen anything go so wide as this before. And, and as deep, the combination was pretty shocking yeah but it happened during one of our avalanche courses so it was great to go up there and see that so they do exist yeah yeah <laughs> we weren't kidding <laughs> <laughs> well that, that sounds like a pretty impressive cycle there peter um let's talk a little bit more about what other mitigation techniques are employed at that ski area. You know, it sounds like you have some history working there and so they do some heli bombing, any remote avalanche control systems in place or just not, hand a, not at that one. Uh, Milford road is super impressive what they get up to down there. They've got, they're just installing one of the first rack systems uh, around. It was, they're still dotting the I's and crossing the T's with the government to get that approved as a, a, a new tool in New Zealand that hasn't really been used before. Uh, but we used to have avalanchers at Trouble Cone back in the day. Uh, that went by the wayside, um, which is 
all right by me. Uh, it's pretty dangerous, the things. I've seen them go wrong. I've heard about them going wrong. I, I know that there was look into uh, a GASX system, but as far as I know, that never really got put in place. And I think it's probably still on the cards in, in the future. Uh, heli bombing is, is the thing that happens here when it can, because it's certainly the quickest way to get the Milford Road open uh, and the ski area is open, but obviously you got to have the weather for that. And because we're all alpine here, uh, you know, that just limits uh, the kind of days that we can do that. You know, we can't fly treetops and, and go and, and, and drop bombs. It has to be uh, clear, but generally we have systems passing through New Zealand fairly quickly and we do a clearing after the storm. So uh, other than that, people go out and, you know, hand charge things. Yeah. yeah but hand charging yeah. doesn't do much for the PWLs. Right. Yeah. A lot of info in, yeah. in use at the ski area there. Yeah, yeah. For this, this winter. Yeah. Peter, you've, you've ski guided and forecasted all around the world, you know, from Alaska to British Columbia, to Colorado, to New Zealand and even India right? Yeah. Antarctica's um, in there, Japan, uh, you know, a few, few other places around the globe. Yeah. I was, I was wondering, uh, you know, like what, what's your favorite place to ski guide these days? <laughs> I saw that, uh, last night and I thought, well, that's like, how long's a piece of string? I mean, it, it's all good. You know, I, I don't, I can't say I've got a, a particular favorite place. Uh, I think you always, when you think back of, of the best places you've skied, it's always because you, you know, you nailed it with a pow. <laughs> you know? uh, that's, that's usually what makes it super good. And, and you remember the super good days and you try to just kind of those average days, you kind of go, Oh yeah. Uh, try to wipe that out of the memory, you know, but I have always enjoyed going to places with different cultures. And that's just puts a whole different twist on it. Um, and it's super exciting to go and guide, new places uh, as well, new, different snowpacks, different terrain, different people, different systems, uh, backup systems for safety or lack of, uh, and, and, you know, change things accordingly. I think it makes it super exciting. Keeps me on my toes. Do you feel like you have a different risk tolerance depending on your context? So oh, yeah. if you're heli, heli ski guiding versus ski tour guiding. Absolutely. And, and try and describe that to me. Uh, I, I, when, when you've got a helicopter and you've got backup with other guides right there uh, and you're wearing an airbag, <laughs> uh, you know that if you do screw it up, you, there's a really good chance that you'll have somebody dig you out. And the people that you're with, you train to do that. So if if they at least got on the radio like you ask them to, the most important thing, <laughs> and call the other guides, and and then they got down somewhere where you were, then that would be a big help. And I, I think when I'm out alone with clients ski touring, and I know that that's not going to happen, uh, I'm I definitely more conservative. There's no doubt. You know, a lot of times when I ski tour, I don't wear an airbag just because I'm just making those choices not to get into that terrain, you know. 
mm-hmm. on those days that I feel as though that's a, an issue. Um, and I think just the nature of heli skiing, you're, 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 um, you tend to ski bigger lines, uh, longer lines. Yeah. And there's, there seems like there's, it, it might not be you that triggers something, if you know what I mean. So, uh, it's, it's good to have that backup or you might be going in to do a rescue and, uh, y- you do have some risk, other overhead hazards that you're trying to cope with. And at least having an airbag on you gives you a little bit of extra confidence that, uh, something will happen, but, uh, in a positive way, I don't ever enter terrain thinking I'm going to trigger anything of consequence. Hmm. And I certainly keep my clients away from that. Yeah. I, I really encourage, like on these courses, I love, you know, finding small things to ski cut and, and, you know, sometimes I'll get the group and we'll cut out the bottom of a slope, uh, very small slope, the size of your room kind of thing, you know, the, that kind of vertical and cut out the sides and, you know, and then jump on it and ride out the slab. It's super fun. Um, great thing to do on a course, you know, people actually get to be in an avalanche, you know, but it's, you know, they, they go 10 feet. <laughs> yeah. Test slopes can tell us so much, right? Yeah. Especially if there's a reactive layer within the snowpack. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's just, it's like when you do a test and you, you know, they, they pull out something pops and drops in your lap kind of thing. It's, it's you know, it, it just sends a, a different message than tapping on something as hard as you can and having nothing happen. <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, well then, uh, <laughs> You can just imagine if, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's 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 nice when there's things actually going on in the snowpack with with avalanche courses for yeah, sure. Yeah, makes uh, a, lot a bit more of a meaningful experience, I think. Yeah, Peter, just in talking to you pre-recording, um, this subject came up, and I was hoping you could speak to how the paper, a conceptual model of avalanche hazard has influenced your career. You know, you've, you've forecasted many different areas, different countries, different cultures, um, and speak to how the the models helped you. Well, when I got into this, uh, we pretty much were dealing with three key words. We, we dealt with stability and we said it was and almost inevitably it was good, fair, or poor. And and then the, quite a good friend that's no longer with us is, came up with a, a guiding to those words. And and that was super helpful because that was involving the mitigation practice or strategy for those particular types of um, uh, of stabilities. But we didn't detail the nature of the beast, like, like the conceptual model brought out. And, and that has been the absolute biggest thing because what that's done and, and thanks Grant Statham for pulling that team together and, uh, and that whole team for providing that, because I do think it's probably the most significant change in the, you know, 30 years I've been doing this, uh, to the whole system is just having that clear systematic, approach from start to end and you know that develop into pretty much the workflow that infox uses uh, to describe these problems and and how you go about doing it and you know it, it just informs where the problem is to the extent uh, 
you know, with its likelihood and size, uh, ultimately coming out to uh, the avalanche type is uh, that's so key to understanding the mitigation strategy uh, the the angle of the slope that would be involved or the minimal minimum angle of the slope that would be involved which is really key uh to making decisions in the terrain yeah so th- those kinds of things have really i think just changed our game changers you know you it informs your targeted obs for the day gathering your evidence you know what you need to do to uh to lessen your uncertainty uh, while you're out there and just, you know, you start out here, you got a good idea and then you just narrow it right down to uh, uh, exactly, you know, either confirm or challenge what you think when you get out there with your field ops from your forecasting and you feel pretty confident uh, by the time you've gathered some of that information. So pretty good, good stuff. Thanks everybody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it gives us common terminology too. Like we're, it seems like, you know, most all avalanche professionals are, are using this now and, and kind of reading from the same sheet of music, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been your experience in the last, you know, five to eight years of traveling around the world that, that, that that's been in use at most of the operations you've been at. Yeah. And if it hasn't, I've, been really integral in making you know it, using that as a as a model and i've brought that to uh you know an operation in japan uh i'm looking to do that again this year at another operation and uh it, it just lifts everybody's game i think all the way across the board and you know i think if you do it at one place and then that is being seen uh as a, that standard it just helps lift the game everywhere you know and hopefully then other operations are picking it up uh japan's uh is a is uh, an unusual place in that it's not regulated at all so you every you can take you know there's some of the ski field uh, like ski areas they have their their instructors guide people in the backcountry uh with as little as a four-day course under their belt it's pretty disturbing uh, so there's there's all kinds of things going on there, but uh, it is getting better. Uh, I was there in 2020, last just before COVID, and uh, and certainly things have improved, uh, but there's still a ways to go. Yeah. And you're planning on going back in January? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's going to be. I'll go for a couple of months um, then and uh, have another crack. Awesome. Yeah, I've never been, but it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a funny like thing. A like very it, cool place. It, it, you know, because there's so much snow in North America, it, it's not usually on Americans uh, and, and Canadians' radar, uh, you know, because it's when you have snow. But it, it's really common for Kiwis and Aussies to go up there because, uh, you know, it's our summer. And uh, yeah. and it's nearly a straight shot north. There's just a few, well, I think, four hours difference or something. It's, it's hardly anything. So, yeah. Uh, it's in terms of time frame, so it's it's pretty easy uh, thing to do, and and crazy crazy snow and great culture, super good food, onsens. Mm. Yeah, bring it on! It sounds amazing. <laughs> I'd like to make it over at some point. Peter, I was hoping you could talk about some of your mentors throughout your career. Ah, Who comes to mind? Pick a country. <laughs> <laughs> Got to narrow it down. New Zealand. Uh here. I'd have to say um, 
probably, I, you know, I, I feel like everybody I've ever worked with has been uh, a mentor in some way or another. So it's the folks I employ, the people that I've worked for, and I suppose here in New Zealand uh, that has come through Harris Mountain. Uh, there's a number of people there that, it, you know, the thing about heli skiing is once you get your foot in the door, kind of the, the the only way out is with a Zimmer frame or a coffin, really, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, you go till you can't move anymore or uh, you, uh, you know, you, you die some doing something, either the job or something else, hopefully not the job. But, um, and so there's a, I've got a lot of, uh, old friends doing that. And one of them would have to be, uh, Whitney Thurlow, uh, which anybody that, uh, is from Jackson hole probably knows that name, uh, from back in the day. Whitney's one of those guys that dropped into, uh, uh, SNS cool art and telemarks. Somebody had to do it. And, uh, but he's been, uh, a mentor for a long time. It seems like my life is parallel to his since some odd way, no matter what I try to do, I just always seem to be going down the Whitney path. Um, but, uh, he's been uh, a mentor for me for sure. And, uh, I have to say, uh, uh, the overall manager for Harris mountains, a fellow named Hugh Bernard. Um, and he has been a mentor for sure. We, we met ski tuning in the, in a workshop here, back in the day and uh, uh he's he guides all over the world and has done for a long time and he he runs uh Tordrillo lodge up in um in, in alaska uh these days uh in in the off season and he manages uh hmh down here but he's been a good mentor in the in the states i'd have to say you know one of the people that really stands out bruce tremper stands out in in my mind just because he is bruce is such an amazing communicator and has prioritized that and in his in his life and particularly in in the last 10 20 years i'd say you know he, he saw that that was really the gap is, is reaching people and i just think he's 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 so good at what he does uh uh there's so many great minds at issw and there's a, probably half a dozen standout presenters of all those presenters you know and and i think he's one of those people like uh it's great having uh someone that can reach a crowd like that dale atkins is uh somebody that it can reach people too like that you know stand in front of people and really really get to them uh and uh i think of uh early on when i was dealing with caa colin zacharias is an amazing fella uh, and, and always comes back in my mind is I, I ran into him in Revy this year, uh, at dinner and, uh, it was great to see him again. He's, he's a pretty special fella, I think. Um, Tom Murphy, I remember, uh, with, with Ari, uh, when I, I was working or <laughs> I had a very short career with Exum in uh, Salt Lake city, uh, before I did my ACL, uh, and then I became the office slave, um, and while I was in recovery, I, I was in conversation with, with Tom and he was just rolling out the, um, what was the precursor to a pro course. Uh, and, uh, I came in and sat in on that and gave him some feedback on that, that happened at Crested Butte. That was nice to share that with Tom. He, he, he was a passionate 
fella. I think he stepped down from that, but these days, but he was a really great fella to, to deal with. So pretty much like I say, everybody that I've been working with, I, I feel like I've learned from and, uh, and that's a great thing. I think it's a wonderful thing about this industry. People are passionate and into it and they are love to share. So it's good. Yeah. Excellent. Um, all right. I think it's story time, Peter. Um, do you have a, any stories of a close call or near miss or avalanche that you've been involved in that you'd like to share with our listeners so that we can, we can all learn? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, the the one I'd really like to share with you is, uh, one that happened back in 2006 that, uh, was my biggest learning curve. And that was, uh, it was quite a big storm that we had over a couple of days and I'd gone to Mount Cook to heli ski with, uh, with an, uh, on a private ship. So two guides in the helicopter and we hadn't skied some of this area before. And so we were doing a lot of on-site guiding and the storm was significant. Uh, you know, we, the, the danger was, uh, or, you know, was oh, we'd call it high now. Uh, it was still poor stability then, <laughs> and uh, so you know we were trying to stay off. It was mostly you know wind slab kind of issues uh, is what we were anticipating. Uh, forecasted for it, went up there, started tiptoeing around, just trying to stay off thirty degree stuff, and you know you're eyeing it from the helicopter, and you know, some stuff we knew that we could do that with, and that all worked out. And you know, I think we, that was an afternoon we went up there and might've done eight or nine runs that day and then got up in the morning and, um, had another crack and we were, there was a lot of remote trickered avalanches from the helicopter, uh, in, in another operation up there and ours. Um, but that, you know, kind of made you go, Ooh, hmm. What's what's the deal there? You know, that doesn't seem very wind slabby. It sounded more like a PWL, um, and so it just gave us more reason to stay off steep stuff. But we went out the next day, and I think we had done about sixteen runs or something. And then the 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 next run, I uh, hopped out and and dug a pit because we were just in a different area. And had found about 60, 65 down, some kind of moderate uh, planar result, which I had to call uh, resistive. And it, uh, you know, looked like a DF layer and thought, oh, okay, well, I guess that's uh, well, probably what is the culprit here. Um, and, you know, I go... I took it as, as, as face value at that. And then, uh, finished that run. We went to the next one. This would be run 18. And, uh, this one looked, a, you know, from the air, it looked the same, but when we got up top, looked over the edge and went, Hmm, Hmm, it looks just a little bit steeper. And, and then inched a little further and I could, because this first time it rolled over, but then I went a little further and I could see that I, I could see a line that didn't roll. There's lots of terrain that did roll in and around the place all the way around. It's a kind of a big amphitheater, maybe 300 meters wide, something like that with a kind of break in the middle and then went around in another amphitheater. And, uh, 
I thought, ah, oh, you know, I think I could do that. I kept come close to that rock there that's sticking out of the slope, but I, I see that as probably the line. I could see a, a good safe spot uh, down below. And I dropped in there and probably seven turns in, um, triggered the slope. And I thought, oh, I got this. I just, I'm just going to. I know what I got to do. I'm just going to point it and get on the radio and yell avalanche. Hopefully I'm being watched and, uh, off I go. And I think I, I'm going good. I'm on this, these shattered blocks and everything's fine. I think, and I'm, I got this, I got this. I'm just going to just point it. And I just went lower and wider and was going very fast. And, uh, but I, I felt like I had it. And, the next thing, the cracks that developed, uh, turned black. So I knew that wasn't a great thing, but, um, it was pretty deep, but I didn't pause to check it out. I just kept going faster. And, and then next thing I knew, like the, the snow underneath me just evaporated, just, it, you know, basically went turbulent flow and, um, just the snow became air and I just did a forward roll. And then I was in the avalanche up to my waist chest something like that and uh and i was in the slab moving and at the same time i could sense something going on in my right and didn't have to look i could but that other bowl ripped out behind me uh and that was headed for me too and that didn't make me that happy <laughs> being buried up to my waist already and as i was uh moving that avalanche hit my avalanche just stopped that slab and the other one banged into it. I could hear it coming. And I was just thinking I'm going to get folded over. So I kind of had my hands out in front of it. And uh, I was just hoping for the for the guide behind me. And uh, that slab hit my slab like within a, a second of mine stopping. And, it, and my slab started moving again. So it didn't ride up and over. So I was like, oh, sweet. So I was able to get out of there. Um, you know, just dust off, had all my skis on, uh, we're already on my, my poles are still in my hands. So I had my pack on, everything was there. I was able to dust off. It was on the softer side of, uh, slabs, uh, once it all broke into pieces and, uh, which was the thing that, you know, why I probably walked away from that one, uh, so easily, but I learned a lot in that one. Um, and you know, we went on to ski a couple of extra runs, uh, probably three more runs after that. And, uh, because it was new terrain, I got to name the run and, uh, we decided it should be called Pete's brown undies. So that, that now, <laughs> now exists in, uh, in Mount Cook national park, Pete's brown undies. And, uh, there you go. But th th some of the things that, uh, I learned from that one, I think was had I, shared my obs and decision-making process with my peer, uh, you know, my other guide at that point, it might've exposed my personal biases that were going on. Um, and you know, it was just a little bit steeper than we had been in before not much, but that visual thing, uh, was notable. Uh, and had we discussed it before I just, you know, I, I, I did say something, but then I didn't go through the process um, of, of uh, taking it a little bit further. I was, my, my ego was definitely at play at, at this stage. Uh, this was a very good client and was trying to uh, deliver the goods. Um, I definitely let 
uh, that gets me a bit. And, and, and I was trying to do something that way. So it's, I think it's really good. Um, you know, your ego is not your amigo. It's a, a phrase I learned up in Alaska. Uh, I thought that that was, was quite apt. Uh, so it never really is. Uh, you definitely need to, it's good to stand down from that. Uh, other things I learned is when all the field ops uh, around you say it's dangerous, it usually is, you know, if it smells like a dog and it looks like a dog. It's probably a dog. Uh, and it was a dog that day and it was a kind of big dog. And I let that column test that I, uh, that I did, you know, it was classic confirmation bias. You know, I, I did this little column test, showed me a resistive planar thing and I went, Oh, okay. And, and I, I really wanted to believe that. And so that's what I believe. Meanwhile, we had remote trickers in the helicopter the day before and uh you know the day before not so much that day um but you know they call them you know from that time on i always call those tests instability tests and not stability tests because they only ever show you where there's instability not stability right mm-hmm. uh and uh you know, the, if you understand the nature of the beast you're trying to tame, then your management strategy, your escape route, and your safe spots are vastly different depending on the avalanche type and failure plan. You know, it, you, your what-if plan uh, changes quite a bit. And in that case, you know, I had something going on in my mind. I thought that that, that line that I was going to take was going to take me out of that bowl at my escape route, which I, I'm religious about doing as having a my my escape path and uh and i didn't anticipate this thing ripping out around uh, a a rib and into the next bowl um i just didn't think that was possible on the day and it and it clearly was what it turned out uh the person that was the, the tail guide um on that run did do a crown wall profile and it turned out that uh, the failure plane was 70 deep. Um, it was on, uh, and this is a really key thing for your listeners, I think, is it was on a layer of intact stellars. Um, it, so that's the DF that I had identified before, but uh, it was on a 29 degree slope, which is hmm, pretty amazing, I think, from all my years. And uh, and he, he ended up getting a, like a Q1 sudden planer on that on that layer, you know, when he gave it a, a quick test. And it was right after the, the event. Not that you needed to know it was Q1 after it avalanched. <laughs> That's a pretty good indicator it's Q1. Um, but, uh, but 29 degrees, that's a that's a pretty low angle slope. 29 though, degrees. Yeah. And so that really sparked my interest in this whole thing about Stellars because it acted like a PWL, right? And I'd never heard mm. anything like that before. And I did a little bit of uh, study into that. Um, and uh, there's a... A paper. Um, oh, I didn't mention Don Sheriff as a uh, as a mentor, and I clearly uh, believe uh, he he's one of those people for me as well. Uh, he's a really good critical thinker, and uh, I I really enjoyed. It. I found a paper that he had done as uh, he was just trying to take the, the all the all the theory and put it into practice. And in there, he he pulled out a 
a graph that Ian McCammon had done in a previous paper, and it showed slope angles of failure planes uh, of many of a number of data sets, and it showed you know the full gambit of the the beginning angle, the end angle, the average and a mean in there as as they do uh, with um, you know, just the standard uh, graphs that are used in that way and they had the data sets on each one and they had uh you know depth or and facets uh, surface or um df um and uh they also had um sd stellar dendrites in there the stellar dendrite set was only eight all right that's all the data that they had on that and there the average angle was i think from memory something like 42 degrees but I, I just did note that, you know, the average angle doesn't really mean much to me. I want to know the minimum angle that this stuff fails on. And the minimum angle that was shown in that, those data sets was still quite high. It was over 30 degrees. Um, so I just stretched that line out a bit further on, the, on, the, on that graph. And I share that with people on my courses these days. Uh, on the upper end of the spectrum, you know, the, the level six course, uh, because it's, you know, it's, and it's a terrible thing. I hate to hate to share this with your listeners, but there's, there's another problem you got to worry about out there and, uh, and acts like a PWL. It's kind of, it's nasty, nasty news. If you didn't know about that, but you know, I, I had, I experienced it the hard way. Um, and, uh, so it is a, really good thing to share and there's very little research uh, and data about st- stellar dendrite avalanches and i think it's because when if you saw them and didn't do a dig you would call it a pwl and call it a facet or a or depth or surface or something but you'd probably uh, you, it'd be the last thing that you thought was some kind of df or or intact stellars yeah yeah um what I I appreciate you sharing that experience with all of us, and and I especially like how you reflected on kind of how you were seeking some confirmation, right? A bit of confirmation bias from digging digging into the snow there, um, and it's so easy to see what we want to see instead of see what's actually there, right? And then it's so important to kind of extrapolate that into the into the worst case scenario of, of what could happen. Uh, given the train that you're engaging with, right? Yeah, and and like I said, you know, thanks to that conceptual model, like I feel like I do, I act way differently when I've got storm slab than when I've got a PWL. Um, as mm-hmm. a result, it's just uh, that one sure caught me out because, um, you know, that was, well, even though that was way before that uh, the conceptual model came out, but still. Uh, you know that that does help guide your actions uh and i think in in that situation uh, i was doubly caught off guard one was a confirmation bias the other was you know i didn't have any experience with something acting like that uh and and it it'd be funny because if i did now and i looked in there and i saw uh you know df as a failure and you know usually it's not that big a deal right it's usually a change in density in, in, in the new snow. And it's not, you know, stuff that, that can heal with a few hours of 
warmth and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, but in the, it was the cold of winter. And apparently that was buried uh, uh, six days prior. And uh, from what I have learned is it, often those layers are, aren't active uh, more than a week, even if it's cold. So I was just kind of on that brink, you know. I, I like old Nelson uh, Mandela's line. Was, uh, you know, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And uh, I think everybody makes mistakes from your you know, your car mechanic to your brain surgeon, hopefully not your brain surgeon. Uh, but you learn from the experience. And, and if you, that kind of makes a difference between learning nothing and um, stumbling along and doing the same thing, or hopefully, uh, you know, a master in the making, if you, you know, do that long enough and, and, and survive those lessons long enough, hopefully you, you are packing all that stuff in and, uh, and, and not repeating those, those same mistakes. Other than that, I think when you take your mistakes and share them with others, and that helps expose some of the mistakes that you may not have been obvious to you due to your own personal bias, uh, it's pretty easy to be the hero of your own story. And uh, I've shared this story uh, in an anonymous manner with uh, a lot of my participants on courses. And I just said, the guy did this, the guy did that, blah, blah, blah. And then I have them evaluate it as to, you know, I don't, I don't tell them what the outcome is. I bring them right to the, you're dropping in, what are you going to do? And, uh, and, and see what they say, you know, and it's really, it was quite interesting for me the very first time I did that because there was things that, you know, I had kind of hidden, uh, in my own mind, uh, thinking that I was doing things all okay, you know, <laughs> because you don't want to admit that you, you screwed it up. So, um, doing that is is nice humbling experience and others learn from it and you learn a lot from it that way. I think it's kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah. That's, that's good sage advice there, Peter. Um, we can all take something from that. I appreciate it. Can I add one more? Absolutely. <laughs> um, probably, uh, another mentor would be Roger Atkins. Uh, I worked with, uh, at CMH last year and Roger has been there for a really long time. Um, and he had me around to his, his place out in the middle of nowhere. And he's a really special, special man. I think he's another critical thinker. Uh, and when he came down and spoke, I met him down here when he came as a, the keynote speaker for the um, Stone Avalanche Conference that we do. And the thing that really stuck out in my mind that he said that I really have, uh, that really hit home because I was trained as an engineer. I thought if you did this stuff for a long time, you'd get, you know, you'd pretty much nail nail it you know you'd did this for 10 or 20 years you'd pretty much understand the game know exactly what was going on and and his line was uh that you know experience really doesn't uh teach you any more about being certain about the conditions experience teaches you to identify and manage the uncertainty that always exists and and that really struck home with me and i i really feel that's the deal you just you know there's there's stuff out there that uh are anomalies uh, like the thing that happened with me and uh and so some pattern recognition and anomaly recognition are are are, are really good tools to throw into your experience basket 
and uh, and and learn from and and the bottom line is you just need to put in a margin of safety with your your terrain choices. Uh, you know, to, that's the only thing that really kind of that helps manage that uncertainty. Uh, the more you got, the bigger the margin of safety. So it seems to be pretty key. Yeah. You can't, you can't eliminate the uncertainty. If you're trying to do that, you're kind of fooling yourself. Hey, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Peter, well, you, uh, you have a couple of sons, right? And they're making quite the splash and in the ski scene these days. Yeah. You you care to just, you'd have to say they're pretty keen skiers. Yeah. And I'm sure you helped instill that, but, um, it seems like they have quite, quite the drive for themselves as well. Um, Finn was in the, uh, free ride world tour last year. Is that right? Yep. And the Olympics. Yep. He's a two time Olympian and, uh, slope style and big air the last two. And, uh, and he, he's always done free ride events, uh, during that time, but, the the world cup schedule is is pretty intense and and the training that goes with it is as well so he just had limited time to free ski uh but he was always a good free skier and uh as the way that and that played out pretty well for him this year i think he we ended up being the top performing kiwi on the tour um and uh yeah he's he he does like that for sure he's definitely into it and uh we'll see what um, what, what happens this year? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I think he's got to make his mind up in another month, uh, as most people on the tour do, but, uh, he does have a place there and, uh, it'd be nice to see him, uh, continue with that. We'll see. It's kind of a catch 20. It's a, a double-edged sword. You know, it is pretty hard watching your, your kid compete on the tour. Um, you kind of sit, it's a bit nail bitey. Uh, my wife, uh, one of the keenest skiers in the family, um, when we've watched things live before, she's nearly squeezed my arm off uh, when they're, <laughs> as they're dropping <laughs> or they, they go into the air and, and the squeeze comes on and it continues for quite some time. <laughs> and then they land and it's okay. And it's like, ah, oh, there we go. The, the pressure comes off my arm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What about Hank and Hank's your other son? He's in the. Yeah. And Hank, uh, he's, he's, uh, was on the tour in 2020 and, uh, made quite a splash there. Uh, they're both super entertaining, uh, to watch and, um, they're even more fun to ski with. That's for sure. And, uh, he, Hank has, uh, taken a job. He, uh, has become a registered nurse and he's taken a job working in an emergency department in Gisman, a place on the East coast here in North Island where he can surf, uh, which is, uh, pretty much the other passion of all of us Billises. And, uh, and he's doing that, but he's, uh, also in the process of, uh, putting together a project, uh, for North face with, um, uh, a, a short film and, uh, that involves skiing and surfing and nursing. So, uh, cool. watch this space. Yeah. Awesome. And he was just down here. He was just down here on his two week holiday. And, uh, it was great to see him after day one. Cause I, he worked, up, uh, hooked up with, uh, uh, Apol here, uh, who's also on the tour and, um, and they, you know, they just skied themselves silly. He couldn't even walk the next day. <laughs> it was great. I was like, Oh good. It happens to you at 25. That's sweet. <laughs> wait till you're my age <laughs> you won't be pulling that 
but uh, yeah, it was great to see them. And uh, it, it was really nice to have them both around. We haven't all been as a family in uh, about a year, almost a year or so. Uh, it was super fun Yeah, have everybody around again, have the house full. Yeah, great. Well, it sounds like you're you're kind of like ending your season down there for the winter and looking forward to being out of ski boots and maybe doing some surfing yourself. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Bring it on. Nice. Well, Peter, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of your experiences and telling us a little bit more about the program that you run there. Um, and yeah, it's great to great to meet you. And hopefully we'll get out and get some turns someday. That would be really nice. Are you coming down here sometime? I'd I'd like to come. Yeah, in the next couple of years, it's kind of like in the in the plan box. We'll see if it comes to fruition. But I'd love to make it to New Zealand. That'd be sweet. Uh, yeah, really nice uh, to chat with you. And thanks very much for having me on the show. And thanks to Lynn for actually mentioning it. Uh, as that's it's uh, very nice of her to do that. And like I said, I do really appreciate your show. I think you do a great job with it. And you've had some amazing folks on there that uh, I've learned a lot from uh, in context too. So thanks so much. All right. We'll chat soon. Thanks, Peter. Okay, buddy. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to this episode. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza. You heard Turn It On during the intro, and Plus 9 is taking you home as we speak. I encourage you to browse and enjoy listening to the diverse array of tracks by Ketza at ketza.uk. Of course, our artwork was provided by Mike T. You demand T. Find more of his work at MikeT.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Things are definitely ramping up for the podcast season. It's prime time for our team to be conducting interviews. Our team of hosts are sitting down with many guests in the next few months. We're going to be doing our best to push out a pre-interview notification on Instagram so that you can submit your questions for these conversations and engage a little bit further. Be sure to follow us on Instagram. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Send any feedback, ideas, and thoughts to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support what we're doing here, consider a one-time or monthly donation to the podcast. You can find a QR code at the bottom of our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and always have fun.